The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. Well, we're continuing in Hebrews chapter 12, and if you have your Bible or your your app on your phone, you want to turn to Hebrews uh, chapter 12. Uh, we'll be looking today at verses 5 to 17, but I'll also refer to verses 1 to 4 as well. But some years ago when I was in Greenville, South Carolina, um, I happened to know uh, a very good football player from Furman University. And after he graduated, he wasn't picked up in the draft, but he was signed as an undrafted free agent. Uh, by the Pittsburgh Steelers, and off to training camp he went. And his story didn't end well. He, he got cut. And I remember talking to him, and I asked him if he, th- if he thought he had a chance. And he said initially that he, he, he did. And then I asked him, I said, well, when did you know that you weren't going to make it? And he just instantly responded, and he said, well, I knew when they stopped coaching me that I was going to get cut. He knew he was going to be a camp body at that point because the coaches were no longer investing in him like they were investing in some of the others. And I remember hearing the same thing in a conversation with one of Tom Webb's sons-in-law who played basketball in college and, and I was lamenting some years ago about my son's basketball coach. I said, man, he just seems like he really gets on the players and he, he yells at my son a lot. And he just looked at me, he said, well, if the coach ever stops yelling at your son, he said, that's much worse because that means that he's given up on him. You see, coaches are relentless in making you better and they're driving you and they're pushing you forward to help you discover your potential. Tom Landry, the great coach years ago of the Dallas Cowboys, yes, I'm quoting about the Cowboys, He once said, the job of a coach is to make men men do what they don't want to do so that they can be what they've always wanted to be. I like that quote. But what I want you to see this morning from this text is God is like a coach, but a whole lot more. He's much better than a coach because he's perfect and he's your all-wise heavenly father who is coaching us through his loving discipline or training that's the Greek word for training, into our lives so he's training us so that we won't quit, but rather that we would be able to share in his holiness. So think of the imagery of a coach and as a, as a father in this text before you. Now keep in mind, this is where I was saying the writer of Hebrews is taking a scripture that Solomon wrote to his sons and giving a direct address that God our Father has a word for us this morning. He's speaking directly to his church. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? 
If you are left without discipline in which we've all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more this see, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root or bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let me pray for us. Lord, we all need to hear this very word. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, to us corporately and, and to each of us individually. Have your way among us. May we yield to you and trust you and love you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to follow the logic of the writer of Hebrews. We're not sure who it is, but I kind of want to look first at flying over the treetops and then we'll come down and we'll look more at the nuances of the argument. But I want us to get the big picture because I think a lot of us read like Hebrews 12, 1 to 17, and we think of verse 1 and 2 as running the race and we forget that the imagery from verses 3 to 17, the whole thing is about running the race. So if you look at the first 17 verses, all in light of a running illustration, I think it will help land some of the argument. Because we're to run with perseverance and endurance, and he comes back to this a few times, that, that the church is getting weary. They're, they're getting tired, and a few of them have actually given up and been DQ'd. They've been disqualified. And so he doesn't want them to quit. And so he's reminding them in the first three verses There's a great cloud of witnesses that's gone before us and they're waiting for us to finish the race because they're not made perfect until we finish and then we all go in together when the fullness of the bride has come in and we all experience the marriage supper of the land. And in the meantime, as we run, we're to throw off the things that hinder and the sin that would entangle and strangle us and we're to look to Jesus and run with perseverance and to consider him and the hostility that Jesus endured from sinners against himself so that we don't quit. And then he's reminding them of this word training. So when you see the word discipline, it's really the same word when we talk about uh, in 2 Timothy 3 about the word of God is for instruction and training in righteousness. Well, the word training is this word paideia, and it is this word discipline. Well, it's really the word for training. And so you see it nine times from verses five to 11. You're constantly seeing training, 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 or discipline. And it's this 
training that we know when we go into training, if we go into the gym, we know that if the first sign of pain comes that we quit, we're not going to get anywhere. Or if I'm trying to learn how to run, I want to run further and further, but I decide every time there's a little bit of pain, I'm going to start walking. Will I ever be able to run a marathon? Well, the answer to that is no. <laughs> After four knee surgeries, I don't run. But, um, but for somebody that's learning how to do this, you keep working because you understand that no pain, no gain. And so we know with, in, in these other areas of life that we have to push through the pain to accomplish goals. And so... The whole point of this is that God, there's a lot of nuanced argument that we'll come back to is God is our father who truly loves us and just as an earthly father trains his children through these difficult things like potty training and difficult things like learning how to drive. You know, these different things are training where fathers invest in their children so that they will be able to use the potty and they'll be able to drive a car and all these other things. Well, those are all things of discipline of which our heavenly father is a much better father. He's a perfect father, perfect wisdom, perfect goodness, perfect love, and his training for us is perfect. And so therefore, he's saying, back to the running analogy, these drooping hands and weary knees that are running this race and they're so tired that they're just starting to go off the path. And as they're going off the path, now they're stepping on things and limbs are starting to get dislocated even. That's the idea of the, the technical word of um, used here about so that which is lame may not be out of joint or literally dislocated. People are starting to deviate from the path and they're no longer running the, the straight path. I heard recently about someone who set a record for running a marathon and there was debate about it because the person ran the fastest marathon ever but they had a car in front of him and it had a line and, and the line was completely marked out of every step the runner was to take because by marking out the perfect path, they knew that they could save so many steps in running this marathon that it would be able to be completed in a little less time by every single step was marked out. That's the idea of staying on the right path, you know, not deviating, making things harder. And so this, this running analogy is then as you're running, watch out, watch out. There is a big root that could trip you up and cause you to fall on your face that takes Christians out. And you know what that is? It's the root of bitterness and it's real subtle. It's a subtle rot that ruins Christians. They trip over a root of bitterness. And if a runner trips, that's not good. So then the, the idea is watch out for this root. Take warning, take heed. Strive for holiness. Pursue peace with all men. And then we're given at the end a picture of someone who's DQ'd from the race. We have someone who didn't run well. We have a runner that was disqualified from the race because he thought, well, I'll just sin and, I'll, and I can ask for forgiveness later. I'll sin and I'll repent later. I can just go ahead and sin now and God will forgive me later. And that's what Esau did. He exchanged his inheritance because he was hungry and he went after the immediate. I want it now. 
I want what this world has, and it was a bowl of soup. And for a bowl of soup, he exchanged his inheritance and gave it to his brother. And as a result, he's DQ'd from the race and has no chance to repent. So that's the big picture of the running analogy running throughout this. Now let's consider this a little deeper. First of all, the context is persecution. We've talked about this maybe a little bit before, but this whole thing goes back to this beginning section from Hebrews 10, beginning of verse 32. And the writer is reminding them, recall the former days after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. So their Christian life began with a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So they would go public with people that were being persecuted, maybe go and visit them in prison. And it says, you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. How in the world can you joyfully accept when your property is plundered? There's only one possible way you could do that. It's, the end, it's 34B. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They knew the world to come was better than this world and all the treasures of this world do not compare with the treasures of that world. So like M- Moses, they're able to leave aside all the pleasures of Egypt and share reproach with God's people. And so he says, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You have need of endurance. You keep coming back to this theme of endurance because the people are getting tired. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And what is promised is eternal life and rest. And so this persecution, when we get to chapter 12, verse 3, we see that the persecution is, is coming We're given the example of Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. And then as you look at three to five as they're connected, what you see is the very discipline of the training that's coming from God is being metered out to you through the hands of sinful men. That they are meaning it for for, for the worst and God is meaning it for the best. And that they're both coming from the hand of God, even though it's being metered out through godless sinners who are persecuting. And so the writer is trying to remind them of that because some of them, these these Jewish Christians, were, were being tempted to go back to Judaism because you know, if we, were, if we just hold on to some Judaism type of things, then we won't be persecuted by the Jews we can go back to that, and we won't be persecuted by the Romans. And basically what was happening was the Roman emperor had a little simple slogan. It was, Caesar is Lord. And the Christians had a simple slogan. It was, Jesus is Lord. Now we have a slight problem here. It's a very big one. Either Caesar is Lord or Jesus is Lord, but they can't both be Lord. And so what was happening was the Caesar decided that he was going to be Lord and might makes right. And so he used Christians as luminaries at night, entertainment by day, and nutrition for animals. 
Christians became the refuse of the world. They were discarded, set aside, stepped on, and crushed. And that discipline has not fully broken out yet, which it's gonna happen under Nero, but most people think that this book was written before the destruction of the temple in AD 70, but there's already persecution and rumblings of it that's already happening, but they haven't resisted yet to the point of shedding their blood. This is where I think John Piper is very helpful in his sermon. I've got these quotes in the handout of trying to make the connection to see that, that the idea is that God's discipline is coming through the hands of ungodly people and that the, the two are not uh, unconnected but very much connected in the weaving of God's providence. He puts it like this. He makes a distinction between discipline and repair and he says it's the difference between the surgeon who plans the incision for our good and the emergency room doctor who sews up after a freak accident. And he's saying God is the doctor who's planning our surgery, not the doctor repairing our lacerations. So the idea is what hostile sinners mean for harm, God means for good. What they will is hurtful, God wills is helpful. What they plan is destruction, God plans is salvation. What they design is a deterrent to faith, God designs as discipline for our faith. And so the idea that he gets at is that God is not coming to his children late after the attack and saying, I can turn this for good. He says, that's not discipline, that's repair. He says it's the difference between the surgeon who plans for the incision for our good and the emergency room doctor who sews up after a freak accident. This text says that God is the doctor planning our surgery, not the doctor repairing our lacerations. So God is using these very things for our good. So it's good to be prepared for this because we will get hurt in this world. We will get hurt by people and particularly at times as believers where we take a stand for something. And you may, not, you may get passed over for being promoted. You may not get pulled aside into, into the room where everybody else goes to have a laugh. You'll be left out and you won't be invited to lunch and you won't be invited to certain things. And, and some of that's okay, but sometimes it's, it's career threatening and sometimes it's career ending. The word discipline occurs nine times here in verses five to 11. I kind of referred to that already. And the idea here is that the writer is going back and forth between encouragement and exhortations, or we might say indicatives and imperatives. The exhortation comes from the encouragements or after the encouragements, and the imperatives come from the indicatives. So what is the encouragement? What's the encouragement of all of this discipline? Well, the encouragement is he's addressing you as sons. He loves you. He's saying, My son, that's how this begins, my son. Don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. And here's the encouragement. Who does the Lord discipline? The ones he loves. Who does he flog, is literally the word. Who does he flog? Every son whom he receives. He loves his children. And so he's saying it's for discipline then that you have to endure because God is treating you as sons. We, we know this is true. I mean, you know, if, if somebody comes over to your house as a parent and the child is bad, we don't discipline that child. We go and talk to their parents. 
and we say, you're, you're, <laughs> there's something we need to talk to you about with your child. Or if, if you're a parent and you find out that your child was disciplined over at somebody's house, you would be pretty upset about that because they have jumped over you. You're supposed to come to me with that, right? So we understand that parents have an obligation and responsibility to discipline their children. And what we're seeing here is that earthly fathers, they did their best. They did their best. What seemed best to them, the idea is that they did their best, but it's, none of us are perfect. None of us are full of wisdom. None of us are perfect in goodness. We are, as, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, we are evil, know how to give, give goods, gifts to our children. So even parents are, they're, they're, none of us have perfect parents. So they disciplined us for their best, but God disciplines us or trains us for our good. And so God knows what he's doing. He is the infinitely perfect trainer and heavenly father. And in his perfect wisdom, he knows what is perfect for us. And in so doing, he's bringing about the fruit of righteousness that at the time seems very painful. And it doesn't seem joyful is really the word. It doesn't seem joyous. It doesn't seem pleasant. You know, this isn't full of joy. But later, it yields the fruit of righteousness. And typically, I mean, when do little children come to realize that their parents really meant, meant it for good? You know, a little, little child is young and, they, and they, they go around and they say, you know, why can't I do this? And everybody else, all their parents say they can do it, but my parents aren't any good. I really enjoyed listening to a, a Russell Moore sermon on on Hebrews uh, this passage and he's a good preacher and he was talking about how his son who's only seven years old just was infatuated with the restaurant chilies and Russell Moore saying I don't know what for but he just thought that going to chilies was where it was at and so he began to work on his parents and so one day they're driving in the car and and he hears his son in the back seat say well there's a chilies where everybody else in the world goes to except our family. And Russell Moore says, we're gonna have a talk when we get home. And he disciplined his son and worked in training him to see that, wait a minute, do you see what you're doing? You have now so hijacked your life that you think that we are not good unless we take you to Chili's and you are holding us hostage to that, basically. I mean, getting him to see that there's really a lot of self-pity going on here, but you've really elevated something to very unhealthy. And good parents are able to see things like that and say, wait a minute, what's the bigger picture going on in the heart? How do I address that? Well, if Russell Moore's doing that, how much more are we, is our Heavenly Father doing that with us because we over-treasure things all the time, and we build up things as adults, as chilies. And we think, ah, everybody else has it but, but me. And the Lord says to us, <clears throat> from Revelation 3.19, Jesus speaking to the church of Laodicea, those whom I love, I rebuke and chasten. So be zealous and repent. Don't recoil, don't give up. 
because he's, he's rebuking you, that's because he loves you. If, if, if he stops doing that, it means you're gonna be cut from the team. It means you're not gonna be a part of it. It means the coach doesn't want you anymore. But because he loves you, he's gonna keep pursuing you with the perfect training. And so some of you that have some really big stuff that's really painful, you're tempted to think God must not love me when it's just the opposite. He must really love you because these things go together. Discipline and sonship are like heads and tails. They're not at odds. They're two sides of the same coin. They're like peanut butter and jelly. They go together. They're like peas in a pod. The presence of discipline, hardships, and trials is not a sign that God has abandoned you. It's just the opposite. It's part of the proof of sonship. Tim Keller in his sermon on this, has this funny illustration where he's talking about an episode that I think is from I Love Lucy, where he remembers where Desi Arnaz thinks that he has hired a personal secretary. And in reality, in this Lost in Translation, he has hired a personal trainer. So here he thinks he's hired a secretary and in comes the personal trainer and here he is eating a croissant and she's instantly, you know, yanking that thing out of his mouth and there's this humorous episode and you can imagine the play, of the humor that that would happen if you thought you had hired a secretary and you got a trainer. Well, then Tim Keller just flips that around and says, that's our problem. That's our problem. Is that we thought we, when we got God, we got a secretary and that he was gonna do our bidding. I thought you were gonna come and help me and, and do all the things that I need and make me successful and make me great and you, know, you were gonna help me. And what we got instead was a trainer. Is God comes along and says, well, I'm actually gonna change you into my image and I'm gonna make you more and more like me and I'm gonna use trials to do it and that's what's gonna change you and refine you. And if we can get that, that shift in our head, then we start to grow in grace. When hard times comes, when they, and they do come, it's easy for us to be Job's friends on ourselves and think, I must be sinning. I must be sinning. And that's why this trial is coming to my life because God is punishing me. And I've had many people say that to me. Say, I think, I think God is punishing me. Let me ask you something. How do you preach the gospel to yourself when the Job's friend is now in your head and it's telling you, you must be sinning, repent? How do you preach the gospel to yourself? You say, wait a minute. All of my sins, past, present, and future, were laid on Jesus he died for them all and said it is finished, it's accomplished, it's done. God doesn't do double jeopardy. He doesn't make me pay for sins twice. Either Jesus paid for all my sins or he hasn't, but he can't pay for them and then make me pay for them because that's unjust. And he's faithful and just to forgive our sins because he's already justly punished them on Jesus. So he's being just to forgive you when you confess them. Doesn't say merciful or gracious there in 1 John 1.9. He's being just because he doesn't do double jeopardy. 
So the way that you come back to the devil, what Martin Luther used to do is he'd always remind the devil of a few more sins. If the devil starts reminding you of your sins, just give him a few more. Play along with him, and then, but then remind him, Jesus died for sinners, and I qualify. That's the gospel, is the jiu-jitsu of, yes, I'm a sinner, Satan. Far worse, even more than you know, devil. I know my sins and a thousand more, but Jehovah knoweth none. You see, A.W. Pink says, this is a helpful reminder for us, is the difference between punishment and chastisement. In the Westminster Confession, on the one paragraph on adoption, it says that God pities us, protects us, and provides for us, but doesn't throw in the fourth P. It says he pities us, protects us, and provides for us, and chastises us. He doesn't punish us because there's a difference. You see, Pink says, the distinction between divine punishment and divine chastisement lies in the recipient of each. The objects of the former are his enemies, the subject of his latter are his children. As the judge of all the earth, God will take vengeance on all his foes. As the father of his family, God maintains discipline over all his children. The one is judicial, the other is parental. A third distinction is seen in the design of each. The one is retributive, the other remedial. The one flows from his anger, the other from his love. Divine punishment is never sent for the good of sinners, but the honoring of God's law and the maintenance of his government. Divine chastisement is sent for the well-being of his children. So we need to see God's good hand in our afflictions. His discipline is not the foolishness of God, it's the faithfulness of God. It's not his hatred towards us, but his love towards us. It's not his punishment towards us. It's actually his pity. And it's not his retribution. It's his refinery. C.S. Lewis has a great illustration. You may remember a mere Christianity about the house. Do you remember the house illustration from mere Christianity? He says, imagine yourself living as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's, what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor here, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. He's building a palace. He's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. That's where C.S. Lewis later talks about in The Problem of Pain, that he's paid us the intolerable compliment of loving us in the deepest, most tragic, most inexorable sense and awful and surprising truth were the objects of his love. You ask for a loving God, you have one. The great spirit you so lightly invoked, the Lord of terrible aspect is present, not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way, not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate, not the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guest, but the consuming fire himself. That love that made the world's persistent as the artist's love for his work and despotic as a man's love for a dog, provident and venerable as a father's love for a child, jealous, 
inexorable, exacting as love between the sexes. It is certain a burden of glory, not only beyond our deserts, but also except in rare moments of grace beyond our desiring. We didn't want to be loved like that. He loves us a lot more than we thought. And so we can say along with John Newton in the classic quote that's in your bulletin if you have it, he says, everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. And that is worthy to go home and just think about for a while. Everything is necessary that he sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. He is your shield. And if something gets through the shield, he has a reason for it. So in light of his fatherly loving discipline, therefore, church, therefore, COVID-19 recoverers, therefore, those that are on big pause button because of the coronavirus, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Now, what I love about the writer of Hebrews is he's relentlessly quoting from the Old Testament. That's why all the readings this morning were for Proverbs 3, because it was obvious he had a scroll of Proverbs 3 and 4 that he was meditating on when he says these, this, this text. And here he's quoting directly from Isaiah 35, 3 and 4. The people of God would have been familiar with this passage of Isaiah 35 because it was a reminder to the people of God of the second exodus. The first exodus is when the people crossed over on dry ground while the Egyptians were breathing down their necks. The second exodus is when God's people were in Babylon and God says he's gonna raise up Cyrus, this pagan king who's gonna release Israel from her captivity and bondage to the Babylonians after they'd been deported there for 70 years of captivity. And that's what we were looking at in our Friday night Bible study. But God promises in advance to his people that he will deliver them from their oppressor in Babylon, but he's using Babylon to refine them, to purify them from their idols. And now the writer of Hebrews is using this very picture to bring comfort to these Jewish Christians who are now under persecution themselves from a pagan environment and emperor just like the people of Babylon being under their thumb and they become weary in the Christian race. And Isaiah 35 ends with this great promise. You may remember it. Isaiah 35, 10, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return. They're gonna come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy will be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. And when the people got there, what happened? As we looked at in the book of Ezra, and we're looking at Nehemiah, they were disappointed because Isaiah 35, 10 didn't happen yet. They gotta keep running because the real joy that's being talked about is still ahead of them. We're bound for the promised land. We're gonna close today singing, I'm bound for the promised land. But we're not there yet to the promised land. But someday, sorrow and sighing will flee away. And we will obtain joy and gladness and everlasting joy shall be on our heads and we shall come to Zion with singing. So keep running to receive what is promised. Make straight paths for your, for your feet. And that's quoting from Proverbs 4.27b. And the idea is strive or pursue peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If you think that you don't have to exert any effort, you see coming to Christ just puts you at the starting line. 
now you got to start running the race. But the problem with Christianity is we put all the emphasis on, the, on, the, on getting to the starting line rather than finishing the race. But the book of Hebrews is all about finishing the race. And so this is what holiness looks like for the author, is that what it looks like is pursuing holiness without which no one sees the Lord. But how do we do that? Pursuing peace with all men. Is there somebody that you are saying, well, man, I am so done with this person. They're, they're dead to me. I don't want anything to do with them. I just, I'm gonna give them a cold shoulder. I don't talk to them anymore. I don't even bother anymore. Really? Is that pursuing peace? Pursue peace with all men. And see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it defiles many. That's a scary word. This root of bitterness, if it gets in you, guess who gets defiled? There's going to be a lot of people that it's going to affect. And this is how churches get split. This is how denominations get split. This is how great things, terrible things happen where the enemy uses bitterness as his main uppercut to knock people out of the race. We're giving a big warning here. Don't trip and fall in your race. And I got the imagery of the 84 Olympics in my head with Zola Budd and her bare feet running along and she steps in front of Double Decker Double Decker, was she had already run the 1500 and the 3000 meter that year, this lady was unstoppable and she was in first place, but Zola had to get in front of her. And when she cut in front of her, she tripped Mary Decker Slaney, who hurt her hip, and she laid on the ground and she just pounded the track and crying and weeping. And her boyfriend came and carried her off the track. She didn't finish. It's such a vivid picture. That's what bitterness will do to you. That's what it does to me if I let it. The problem with unforgiving bitterness, Jack Miller says, is it's a concealed rot that goes deep into the life of a person possessed by it and they don't even know it's there. When it happens, prayer becomes ineffectual because the spirit is grieved by our lack of forgiveness. Is there somebody this morning that you need to forgive? Is there somebody that's tripped you up in the race? You know, even the, Paul says, you know, what happened to you? You were running such a good race. What happened? Somebody came with it, you know, and tripped you up. We need to remember the gospel. Jesus died for our sins, okay? His last, one of his last words from the cross is, it is finished. Well, what's the significance about that? Well, one of the scariest things about hell, and there's a lot of scary things, is that we can never make the payment. We'll never be done making the payment, those that are in hell. It's, you've sinned against an infinite God. It requires an infinite punishment. Therefore, it's an infinite, endless punishment of hell. That it, it talks about forever and ever. And Jesus comes along and says and dies for us and says, it's finished. The payment is, is made. Think about that. We, we would have never been able to pay the debt. We would always be indebted forever and ever and ever. And Jesus says, it's finished. 
So how can we make others pay for the hurt they've done to us when Jesus took our hurt that we had done to him and he saves us and says, it's finished, I paid your debt. And so now he's taught us in the Lord's Prayer to say, Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive those indebted to us. When this gets down into our souls, we release others from the debt that they owe us because we know that our debt of what we've been forgiven was so much infinitely greater that we have the grace to forgive. And when we do forgive, we discover something. Not only do we release that person, we release ourselves. Because bitterness is the bile you intended for somebody else that you've been drinking for yourself. Bitterness is bondage. And so Jesus is saying, consider or the writer saying, consider that Jesus endured such hostility from sinners. Look what Jesus did. And he didn't quit, and he's saying to us, don't get weary and quit. And then lastly, don't get DQ'd from the example of Esau. As you're running this race, keep in mind the people of Hebrews 11 that ran well. They, they were looking as stra- aliens and strangers to these promises. They, they looked by faith to the city that was to come. But Esau did o- just the opposite. He traded all the privileges of his inheritance. He considered it nothing to him. He does just the opposite of Hebrews 11. He saw, Esau saw the stew in front of him, and he was hungry. He was ravished. And like Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness... And the devil likes to come along when you're hungry. And he loves to tell you God's not being good to you. He's holding out on you. And you just need to make it happen yourself. And just turn these stones to bread and don't worry about the consequences. Just ask for forgiveness later. But take care of your need. I remember there was a couple years ago that I was counseling and they were struggling to stay pure before they got married. And I told him, look at Genesis 25 and consider Hebrews 12, 15 to 17. Consider this because get get Esau in front of you. They chucked it. They couldn't wait. Well, Esau chucked it. He, He thought, well, what good is a birthright to me? What good is my inheritance when I'm so hungry? He put up no resistance. He exchanged all the good things of God for all the pleasures of this world because he was living for the now. He was living for the immediate, the moment. And the whole point of the writer of Hebrews is, is right now at the moment it's gonna seem painful, but later it's gonna yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So the question really comes down to, by faith, what are we living for? There's only one life to live, and soon it will be past, and only what's done for Christ will last. Let's think about these things as we continue to run the race as we're bound for the promised land. Let me pray for us. Father, do weed out the idols out of our heart, these inordinate loves for other things. Lord, may we not be like the soil that quickly springs up, but in a time of testing, quickly falls away. Lord, we pray that we would bear fruit that remains with good and noble hearts. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would weed out the sins of the flesh and may we sow to righteousness. May we sow 
to the word of God and may we reap in turn eternal life. We, we ask for your grace and your strength and your mercy where we failed. But we ask in Jesus' name, amen.